I think we'll put this down here. What do you say? <clears throat> wow, thanks for being here. You know, I never know what to do on Sunday mornings when it snows. Um, how many of you would like, say, if we had just canceled the first service, how many of you would be available to come to the second service? I always think there might be people who work, there might be people who have other commitments, and so on and so forth, and so I always hesitate to do that. I, I always think, like, who am I to cancel other people's worship, right? I mean, just don't want that responsibility. If somebody else would like to make that decision, talk to me after church. We'll let you have that call. I never know quite what to do. And, uh, you know, to make it worse, I used to plow snow, so it really doesn't bother me. And, you know, I live in Trumbull, and I have a four-wheel drive, and so it's like, I like this. This is nice. It's beautiful. Didn't you think it was beautiful coming down here? Uh, the white on the trees and, and so on and so forth. I said to my daughter, you know, if you were in Florida, you couldn't, you couldn't see this. She said, now's not the time to tell me that, Dad. <laughs> well, um, we've been in uh, the Old Testament, and we saw right from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 1, that... God intends to bless the people that he created. And to bless, for God to bless us is for God to bring goodness into our life. That's his intention. That's what he intended to do. And um, how very carefully God's made promises along that line. He's made promises. He's preserved his promise. He's fulfilled his promise uh, to bless, as he said to Abraham, all the ethne or all the families of the earth, all the different people groups uh, of the entire earth. And so... Uh, God blesses us, I think, by allowing us to become partakers of his nature, as Peter says, uh, that we are able to get back to that place where we were created uh, in the image of God. And then we lost that. And the way that God blesses us is he allows us to be partakers in his nature, which restores us to some degree and ultimately in heaven uh, where we will be like Christ. But in the process of the course of our life, uh, God shares his nature, his life, his spirit with us. And, uh, you know, when that happens, we start to live an entirely different life, a life that Jesus said could be described as abundant or uh, overflowing, uh, a life that's got excess to it, uh, surplus to it, a life that's abundant. And, uh, and then because of that, a life that influences other people uh, with the life of God. And so uh, we're blessed, I think, to be a part of becoming uh, obviously different from the people around us. And there's been a lot of talk over the last, you know, 20, 30 years about how much the church has accommodated itself to the culture and how there isn't that much difference between the people of God and the people of the world. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of people like uh, George Barna that quote statistics about the divorce rate in the church compared to the divorce rate outside of the church, alcoholism in the church, alcoholism outside of the church, you know, uh, debt in the church, debt outside of the church. And over the last 20, 30, 40 years, you know, uh, those statistics, which used to be worlds apart, are pretty close together. And so, you know, you kind of wonder, like, well, where is this abundant life that God promised? And where is the difference that it makes? And how are the people of God different from the people who've not experienced the blessing of God? And uh, what's that all about? And so forth. And so I want to suggest to you this morning that there's at least two major ways that God's life is better than our life without God. Uh, that our life becomes more attractive when we live this abundant life that Jesus talked about and when we cooperate with God and allow him to bless us uh, with his life. Um, there's our life and, um, and then there's God's life. And when God's life gets into us, our life changes, I think, in at least two ways. First of all, God is always right. 
you know, and we're not, right? I mean, at least I'm not. But God's always right or righteous, okay? And then God is always wise. He always knows what to do. And uh, we're not always wise. And so I think in the Old Testament, uh, where we're studying, God, first of all, gives the Ten Commandments so that we can know what is the right thing to do, too. God gives us the Ten Commandments, and if you study them, um, you'll know what the right thing to do is. And then I want to suggest to you this morning in particular that God has also given us what's called in the Bible wisdom literature. And when we study the wisdom literature, it has the uh, potential to make us wise, to know what to do in what situations, how to make uh, great decisions. Um, and so I think, you know, uh, the wisdom literature, uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, some of the Psalms, the book of Job, uh, is considered by uh, many people to be wisdom literature, um, so that we can be wise. And wisdom is just understanding. It's, it's the opposite of being foolish. Wisdom and folly are opposite ideas. And so to be wise is to have understanding and to know how to make um, decisions uh, and not be foolish or uh, to be uh, caught up in folly. Uh, last week I suggested to you that um, a lot of the unhappiness that we experience, right, is the result of listening to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves, right? If you think about it, a lot of the unhappiness that we end up in is because we've listened to ourselves instead of talked to ourselves. But let's say we were going to talk to ourselves. What would we say? What is it that you're going to tell yourself in the place of what yourself is telling you? And that's where wisdom, you know, this uh, difference that God manifests, that's where wisdom uh, makes such a difference. Um, what would we say to ourselves? And so about 10 years ago, uh, Andy Stanley, uh, who's a pastor down in the Georgia area, wrote a book called The Best Question Ever about 10 years ago, the best question ever. And it was a little book about um, making decisions. I don't know if you would admit it, but uh, I think pretty much everybody has made poor decisions someplace along, along the way in their life. I'm sure you've made some poor financial decision at some point or some poor decision about your health or some poor spiritual decision you know, uh, along the way or poor relational decisions you know, uh, along the way. We all have made uh, poor decisions and you know, pretty much our life is the result of the decisions we make. And so I've talked to enough Christians um, uh, to know that when people have to make a decision, uh, oftentimes they ask the wrong question, Christians. When we, and Andy Stanley wrote this book, you know, and he kind of challenged some of these kinds of questions. But it's true that, you know, in the process of making a decision, a lot of people will ask the wrong questions. Uh, they will say, well, I'm thinking about doing this. And, uh, you know, uh, and their question is, is it legal? Well, it might be legal, but it might not be wise. You know what I mean? It might be legal. Um, or people will ask the question, you know, is it moral? You know, or if I do this, can I get away with it? You know, um, is there anything really wrong with what I want to do? Uh, or basically, how close to the line can I get, you know, um, without crossing the line, without doing something wrong? How far can I go? without having to pay the consequences, how many drinks can I take, you know, how much debt can I endure, how, how, how long can I neglect my health or my finances or my family or my work responsibilities without creating some unmanageable consequence? And we ask those kind of questions and then make decisions on the basis of, it's just the wrong question. 
So Andy Stanley, I thought it was a great little book, and he just said, here's the best question ever. What is the wise thing to do? Right? I always used to ask myself the question, um, how fast can I go over the speed limit without getting a ticket? I mean, that's kind of how I drove, right, for lots of years. And, uh, but that's really a dumb question, isn't it? You know, as you get older and you get wiser and you start to, you know, well, think about that. In every area of life, what's the wise thing to do? And how would you know where to turn uh, to find wisdom? Um, and so uh, when we start asking the right question, what's the wise thing to do? Um, and we don't ask, you know, what, what's everybody else doing? Or, you know, is it permissible for me to do this as a Christian? Stop asking those kind of questions and ask, well, what's the wise thing to do? And we read in the wisdom literature um, that wisdom comes from God. Proverbs uh, 1 7 uh, basically says, uh, you know, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of understanding. You don't begin to understand anything until you factor God into your thinking. The fear of God is the very beginning. And that phrase is repeated 13 different times throughout the course of Proverbs, which is one of the wisdom literature books. And so, um, you know, here's the thing about wisdom. Um, the world we live in is not neutral. And so there's a lot of foolishness in the world, right? There's a lot of greed. There's a lot of selfishness. There's a lot of sensuality. You don't have to go looking for foolishness. It just comes to you, right? But wisdom's not like that. Wisdom has to be sought after. Wisdom has to be pursued. Wisdom is something that you have to want and go after. And so God blesses people. He desires to bless people with righteousness and with wisdom to the point that they live lives that are different from the people around them to the point that the people around them recognize how attractive God is in you and are asking you the reason for the hope that's in you, as Peter puts it. And that's how this blessing begins to spread to other people. Uh, that we live lives that uh, are more attractive uh, than people who don't have this life from God in us. And so um, Peter says, you know, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you when people ask. And so I'm always asking myself, when's the last time somebody asked me, you know, about the hope that's in me or about the life I'm living or about the quality or about when is the last time somebody asked and are we really... You know, do we take advantage of those opportunities when people do ask us in various ways? You know, what is it that makes you tick? What is it that, you know, is in you? And are we ready to say, you know? And so the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God, I think, the fear of the Lord is a deepening of belief that's based on increasing knowledge. The more and better we know and understand God, the deeper our response to him becomes. If we're casual in our approach to God, and if we just settle for what we learned when we were five years old, and we don't ever go any deeper, well, we don't develop that uh, deep kind of belief that uh, really enables us to be partakers of God's nature. Um, the more I come to know and understand him, the deeper my respect, the deeper my awe, the deeper my worship uh, becomes. There's a, a personal surrender. There's a uh, you know, uh, a dropping of resistance and there's an attitude like he must increase in my life and I must decrease. And what I think isn't as important as what he thinks. And so when in any area of life, I want to know, what does God say? What does God think? And so uh, we have all of this wisdom literature over and over again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning 
of wisdom in every area of life. Uh, even before we get to the wisdom literature, way back in Genesis uh, chapter 22, uh, you might remember that um, you know, after all Abraham had to go through to have a son, uh, God came to him and asked him to sacrifice his son. And uh, in uh, Genesis chapter 22, he's just about to sacrifice his son. And uh, in verse uh, 11, it says, an angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And here's what he said. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. If you're, gonna, if you're willing to obey me and you're willing to take me at my word and take my word at face value, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And uh, this, you know, I always think of this as the root of the whole Arab-Israeli crisis that we're still living with today. It goes way back to here. You know, God says that uh, Abraham's son Isaac is his only son, not Ishmael. When you were ready to sacrifice your son, your only son. And, of course, he had a son by his handmaid, um, Ishmael, uh, who was the progenitor of the whole Arab world. Uh, But anyway, so here, you know, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything. Now I know that you fear God. The connection between obedience and the fear of God, understanding who it is that we're interacting with, you know, is is connected here. In Exodus uh, chapter 14, uh, again in verse uh, 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, and so the people feared the Lord. Uh, the, the Israelites kind of saw what was happening, you know, and, and saw their deliverance through the Red Sea and, and so forth. And so as a result of that, they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Uh, to fear the Lord is to have respect for him. It's to bow down to him. It's to surrender to him. It's to recognize he's God and I'm made out of, you know, the dust of the earth uh, and so forth. Uh, Deuteronomy, uh, again, as the... Uh, uh, nation is getting established in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and uh, verses 9 and 10. Um, uh, here Moses is, is talking about the people's response to God. And, and uh, you know, this is, I think, still applicable to us today, even though it's way back here. Uh, take care and keep your soul diligently. Keep your soul diligently. Be serious about, uh, you know, minding your soul, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, uh, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children also. So that they may learn to fear me. Again, it's something that is learned. It's something that we have to go after. It's, I want to know, what does God think about this? And what does God think about that? And uh, I, I, I want to know. The fear of God is directly connected to knowing how to live, how to make life work. Uh, the fear of God is to commit yourself to him and to him alone. Uh, in tr- at Trinity here, we call it living a God-first life, right? If God is first, well, then we want to know, what does God think about every area of life? And, uh, and how are we going to respond to him uh, when he's first? And, and I think, you know, a lot of times we become Christians, we sort of forget what God has done for us. And the next thing, God is second, third, or fourth consideration down the line. And, and, and then we end up kind of in a mess in our life. And we wonder why, how is it that we got here, right? Uh, God first. And so, 
And then in um, Kings, uh, Solomon uh, prays, and um, they're dedicating, you know, Solomon built the temple, and they're having a dedication. And uh, just to take this one step further, it's God's desire that all the peoples on all the face of the earth fear God. And uh, in verse 41, he's praying, and he says, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country... Uh, for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. Uh, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. It's God's desire for all people to have uh, an understanding of himself and a fear of him. This is like a global outreach prayer, right? It's God's desire that the foreigner who comes into your midst and who comes into Israel, that as they pray and, and they pray and turn to the house of Israel, uh, that uh, God would answer so that people would fear him and have the same kind of respect for him that the people of Israel have. And so fearing God is kind of a guiding principle for every area of life. Uh, but we have to learn. We have to pursue. Psalm 34 says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And so the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of understanding. Uh, Proverbs. Uh, in, in Proverbs, you know, as I said, this, I'm not going to read all of these, but in Proverbs chapter 9 and, and verse 10, again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom, knowledge, insight, understanding, uh, understanding how life works and uh, how to make decisions and so forth. Uh, and again, 13 times throughout the book of Proverbs. And then Ecclesiastes, again, is a, one of the uh, wisdom literature books. And at the very end of Ecclesiastes, uh, the sum, summary of the book of Ecclesiastes um, says this in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. The end of the matter, after all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the whole summation of life. Uh, and the first thing about life is to fear God, to respect God, to uh, give God first place in your life. Uh, Job, Job 28, uh, also talks about this um let's see job 28 28 says this um and he said to man behold the fear of the lord that is wisdom and to turn away from evil that's understanding there's a whole uh, this whole chapter if you're looking for something to do this afternoon uh, chapter 28 of job and chapter 8 of proverbs are all about what wisdom will do for you i mean they're just great chapters to kind of ponder uh, about how important wisdom is for us to have. And then, of course, you know, um, the difference between us who have this wisdom and the world around us ought to be evident and uh, ought to show and ought to be uh, a place where people, you know, notice a difference and, and seek what we, you know, have in order that they might be blessed by God as well. When God is truly first, we avoid evil and... Um, experience the benefits of his wisdom. But it does make us different from the people around us. Uh, you remember Psalm 1, blessed, right? Happy, blessed by God 
is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, right? But he delights in what? The law of the Lord on which he meditates day and night. And then a little bit further in that psalm, it says the wicked are not so. The wicked don't enjoy meditating on God's word. The wicked don't hang on to the words that God. The wicked aren't seeking wisdom and so on and so forth. But there should be this radical difference. People who fear God, worship him, and then they experience his favor. So apart from personal knowledge and surrender to God, everything else in life, according to Ecclesiastes, is um, trans, uh, transitory. It's changing. There's nothing in life that's permanent and solid. There's no kind of uh, focal point to build life around within life itself. Because it's always, that's the whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's unfortunate that the translation of that word is vanity, all is vanity. It doesn't mean that all of life is a waste. Because, you know, a little bit later in the third chapter of Ecclesiastes, uh, the author says what? Everything is beautiful in its time. There's a time for everything in life. And life is great, and God created it. Uh, I think a better translation of that word is that everything in life is transitory. Everything in life is temporary. Everything in life is changing, including you and me. Right? And th there's no reference point. There's no, there's no place to kind of understand the meaning of life within life itself. Uh, without God, there just isn't a guide. There's no, you know, in and of itself, you can't discover the key to the meaning of life. But when you believe the promise of God and your faith leads you to this fear or respect of God, uh, to a God-first life, uh, all of a sudden we begin to see things that we never saw before that God reveals to us and things start to fall into place. Uh, to fear God is to turn from self, to turn from death, to experience life uh, where God does make everything beautiful in its time. In um, Ecclesiastes uh, 3 and um, verse 11, you know, there's that passage where, you know, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, time to pick up what's planted, time to kill, time to heal, so on and so forth. And you get all the way down to verse 11, and it says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And then it says, also, he has put eternity in people's hearts. Because this world is not eternal, it never can satisfy us. Because God has put... When you meet somebody and they tell you, well, I just don't believe in the afterlife and so on and so forth, you can know that they're struggling inside because God has already put the notion that there's more to life than this life in people's hearts. God has put eternity in people's hearts, right? Um, but here's the problem. Also, he put eternity in man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. By himself... In this life by itself, you cannot figure out what God's up to or what's the meaning of life or where it came from, where it's going. You just can't do it without a reference point to God himself. And that's why the fear of God is the beginning of understanding anything. Um, and if we try to reason from within uh, this life, God has seen to it that you, you, if you leave him out, you will not be able to figure out its meaning. And so if you've ever read like philosophy, you know, and the different people have different philosophies about anything you want to read about. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's not, it doesn't say anything. It doesn't, you can't like, and it's always changing. And that's why there's so many different philosophies. And uh, everybody kind of uh, has their own idea and so forth. I would say that life is unintelligible and confusing, at least uh, apart from God. And so wisdom marks the life of a person who's truly following God. Wisdom ought to make us attractive. And so God gives us this wisdom literature. 
uh, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, some of the Psalms. Uh, Proverbs chapter 8 is uh, great. So Proverbs, if you think about it, uh, the men are studying Proverbs, uh, 6 o'clock Thursday mornings. You're welcome to come. We have breakfast first, but we're just starting. And uh, Proverbs are like um, very highly concentrated, you know, uh, nuggets of truth, right? Uh, When you think about the Proverbs, uh, a a little bit of Proverbs goes a long way, right? You can learn Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. When you're a kid, it'll take you all through life. How many times do you, if you're going to speak to yourself, say, you know, don't lean on your own understanding here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not just your head, but your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. Once you have that nugget, it, it'll just serve you your whole life. And uh, how many different you know, situations come up where uh, you can talk to yourself with that very simple proverb? Uh, proverbs are like truisms that have been honed down, shaped, and sharpened so that um, a little goes a long way. Easy to memorize. In any area of your life, you can take one of these and, and it just stays with you. And so they're designed to make us wise. Proverbs, I think, uh, where some folks go wrong is that Proverbs uh, are not necessarily given to us as promises, but are given to us as probabilities. The Proverbs are like, you know, if you live like this and you make these choices, the probability is this is how your life's going to come out. But there are always exceptions. There are always things that happen. And so a lot of people will quote Proverbs, you know, as promises, but they're not necessarily, they're more like probabilities. If you live like this, if you listen to God and you make these choices, the probability is that your life will come out like this. Uh, Proverbs address the practical areas of life. Um, And wise people, it seems to me, well, Proverbs tells us, uh, listen to and welcome instruction. Wise people stay teachable. They want to learn. They're pursuing wisdom. I want to know, what does God think? How can I make a right decision? How can I set myself up for the future in ways that, you know, God says he's going to come through in the future and so forth? And so uh, the book of Proverbs is probably the best uh, book to start with if we really want to understand uh, wisdom and gain wisdom. And then uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, again, um, is another one of these wisdom books, and it reminds us that everything in life is transitory. Everything in life is temporary, including us in this life. Uh, everything in this life is changing. And so apart from God, you can never really be satisfied, never really be content because God has put eternity in our hearts. And uh, you and I are about more than this life has to offer. And uh, even though there's a time for everything, uh, and even though God makes everything beautiful in its time, uh, God has also put eternity in our hearts. And without God, you simply can't put the pieces of life together. Uh, Wisdom tells us that it's impossible to have a correct worldview apart from God. It's impossible to have a worldview uh, that works. And uh, Job also, I think, deals with uh, this idea of eternity. A lot of times people will ask the question, you know, is the idea of eternity in the Old Testament? And uh, hopefully next week we'll spend a little time uh, here and in Job uh, trying to uh, ferret that out. The other piece of wisdom literature is, of course, the Song of Solomon. And some of the Psalms... But um, Solomon, the Song of Solomon, Solomon is mentioned seven times in the book of the Song of Solomon. And uh, he's one of the main characters in the book. Uh, The Song of Solomon is poetic and it's hard to interpret sometimes. It's about love. It's about romantic love. It's about marriage. 
Uh, it's about the sanctity and the joy and the holiness and the otherness, if you will, of marriage. And um, I think the Song of Solomon is best viewed as uh, a commentary on Genesis chapter 2 when God made marriage. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2 and read how God made uh, Adam and Eve and brought them together and so on and so forth. Uh, the Song of Solomon, I think, sort of picks up there and is a commentary. Uh, there are three people in the Song of Solomon, three different uh, people in this love story, and it's the classic love triangle that's going on in the Song of Solomon. When you read it and, and try to ferret it out, uh, there's a woman who's absolutely stunning and beautiful, and uh, there's Solomon who's trying to woo her uh, into his harem, into marriage. And uh, Solomon, with all of his wealth and with all of his um, you know, power and all of his honor and all of who he is as the king of Israel, he's got this growing harem, if you know, kind of famous for it. He ends up with 700 wives and 300 concubines, over 1,000 women in his life. And uh, there's this woman that he sees, and she's a Shuamite, and, uh, but she's got a boyfriend, and uh, he's a shepherd. Right, And he's back home, and she's in Jerusalem, and Solomon's trying to woo her, and um, she loves the guy back home. Her love is strong, and she wants to marry him. She doesn't really want to marry Solomon. And so, um, you know, if you look at this um, couple of uh, verses here at the end in uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, um, and again, this is poetic, you know, and, um, but uh, verse 11 and 12, um, Solomon had a vineyard, you know, and uh, he let out his vineyard to keepers. Uh, each one was to bring uh, for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. Uh, my vineyard, my very own, is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and the keepers of the fruit, 200. Uh, but I have my vineyard of one, you know. And uh, this, this is this comparison between this shepherd boyfriend and this, uh, you know, King Solomon and, and, and all that he's after. If you go back up to um, uh, chapter 8 and verses 6 and 7, I think we have the reason why we have this in the Bible. Um, uh, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Love comes from God. And when it's, when, it's, when, it's, when it's of God, that love is so strong, it's stronger than uh, anything can woo it away. The love is so intense that no amount of money, no amount of power, no amount of anything, right? And, and that's what love stories are really made out of. And so the love is a, a flame from God. And when when your love in your uh, marriage relationship is the love of God, it's uh, you know, as strong as death. It's as fierce as the grave. Uh, look at verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it out. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. You know what that's saying in poetic way, I think, is that Solomon tried to love and lost. Right? He pursued this woman. And he had all of this wealth and all of this, but he lost. And she wasn't really interested in him. And uh, she was interested because she loved her boyfriend. Uh, again, it's a commentary on how strong marital love really is. And so happiness in marriage is not found in collecting more wives, but in cherishing and loving 
as God loves you, the spouse that is in your life. And uh, if you think about it, how often does God in the Old Testament especially compare, and even in the New Testament, Ephesians 5, uh, his relationship with us like that of a husband and wife? And God is the husband and Israel's the wife. The church is the wife. The church is the bride of Christ. You know, uh, when we get to heaven, there's this marriage, supper of the lamb. A lot of times God uses his relationship with us and uses marriage as a description of what that relationship is really like. And so here's a book in the Bible, the Song of Solomon, that's dedicated to celebrating uh, the gift of godly love with our spouses. And uh, that's the love that you receive from God that becomes the source of your love for your spouse. It's about marital fidelity. It's about sexual love. Uh, Solomon had everything the world had to offer, tried to woo this woman, um, but she had her shepherd boyfriend back home and her love was stronger than all of Solomon's you know, approaches. And so I think there's a couple of pieces of wisdom that come to us when we think about it, uh, very relevant for ourselves. If we listen to this wisdom, uh, first of all, I think it provides a very rich, uh, this book of the Bible provides a very rich uh, insight into romantic or intimate love. Uh, it points to the truth, it seems to me, um, that's found in the tension between sexual perversion, which I would say Solomon in this instance demonstrates on the one extreme, and then a legalistic denial of the essential goodness of intimate love as God designed it for marital fidelity. And this book kind of shows us that the truth is there in this tension between Solomon and this woman and her boyfriend. Uh, I also think that there's a lot of wisdom found in this particular book of the Bible on the way that God made men and women to be different when it comes to sexual orientation, that men and women are not the same. They're different, and God has done it for a reason. It's often said that you know a woman uh, will give intimacy in order to get love, and that's always a mistake, and that men will give love in order to get intimacy. And that, too, is a mistake. You know, uh, That's not the kind of love that comes from God that has those ultimate ulterior motives. And so the book of Solomon, I think, bears out um, that um, the wisdom of God, which insists on love that cherishes its spouse, is like the love that Christ has for the church and is the love that the Father has for us and is part of the blessing that God wants us to experience, to be loved by God, uh, to be brought into his nature, right? To become partakers of God's nature, to have his spirit put inside of you is a description of an intimate kind of love that we're sharing. We're becoming one with God. We're being restored to the image of God. And marriage is a demonstration of this relationship that God invites us into whereby he wants to bless us. And uh, I think the Song of Solomon gives us a lot of wisdom, much needed wisdom for our day. And uh, so anyway, uh, those are some of the, uh, I think, in the Proverbs, the uh, book of Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, they make us wise. They make us understand how God made us and what God made us for and what works. How does life really work? How do we really experience the blessing of God? in the context of living out our everyday lives. And so God has given us these wisdom books. And so the question is, you know, um, how important is wisdom to us? How do we pursue wisdom? Are we doing anything to pursue wisdom, to, to pack our lives with more wisdom so that when it comes time to making a decision, instead of listening to ourselves, we can talk to ourselves with God's word. 
and uh, speak into our own lives from God so that we can uh, have this uh, wisdom kind of mark our lives in an increasing manner. Would other people consider you to be a wise person? You know, when people think about you or other people think about you, would, would people say, you know, one of the characteristics, if you died and people came to your funeral, would one of the things people be talking about is, oh, that was really a wise person. They knew how to make choices. They knew how to live. They knew how to make decisions because it makes our lives attractive. And we ought to always be ready then to say, you know, this abundant life spills out of us into other people's lives. One of the major reasons God gave it to us is so that we can share it with the next person. Uh, so wisdom is a gift from God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of uh, really knowing anything about anything. And it sets us up for a lifetime of wisdom. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Father, we're so thankful for your word. And we do acknowledge before you this morning that you are wise. Uh, you are different from us. And we are so thankful that it's your intention to bless us and that one of the ways that you intend to bless us is to share your very nature with us. And so we recognize, Father, that you're both righteous and you're wise. And uh, you've given us the Ten Commandments so that we too can know what's right and what's righteous. And you've also given us this wisdom literature uh, whereby we can uh, become wise and we can figure out how to make wise decisions uh, that will enable us, Father, to maximize the blessing that you intend to give us. And so in these various practical areas of our everyday life, I pray that you would uh, create within us kind of a desire and a hunger to just have more wisdom, especially young people. I think uh, Proverbs is like a father talking to a young son, uh, the whole beginning of it, and uh, the need for our young people today to have wisdom and understanding that comes from you. We have so much uh, knowledge that comes uh, from, you know, all the different sources and uh, so readily available and so packed. And so many people think that, you know, more education is the answer to our problems. But the more educated we become, it seems still the, the more our problems become pronounced. And what we really need is wisdom. And so I pray, Father, that your church, your people uh, would pursue this wisdom, would learn, Father, what it means to, um, to, to have this understanding, this wisdom, uh, to the point where it would be recognized and it would be attractive. And uh, it wouldn't be judgmental, but it'd be loving the way it comes to us from you. And that as a result of that, Father, uh, we could be uh, people who live an abundant life to the point of influencing the people around us in order that you might spread your goodness, Father, as you intended from the very beginning. So we thank you for that privilege of representing you into our culture and society in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.